Hi, I'm Bernard Leung and you may know me as the executive who have read the S1 filing of Uber IPO and in my spare time, I want to understand whether the strategy of super apps from Grab and Gojek will work in Southeast Asia. You're listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business technology media in Asia and today I have John Russell, reporter from TechCrunch. Welcome John and it's great to have you back on the podcast. You've been breaking a lot of news recently. Hey Bernard, how you doing? Good, good to be back here. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, but... I just want to get to know what have you been up to because there are a couple of stories you have broken which are really interesting. So since our last conversation, what have you been up to? When's the last time that I was on your podcast? It's been a while, right? It's probably a long sort of six to nine months, I guess. So there's been a lot of things going on. Anything in particular you want me to talk about? I thought I wanted to ask you three articles that you've written. So I think the most interesting one is the one that just happened yesterday with Honest Beast CEO departure. You broke the story and they retaliated and then in the end you were proven right. You want to talk about that? Well, I mean, it's never anything personal, right? But yeah, like I think it's an interesting story because I think there's been so much money going into Southeast Asia in the last few years. There hasn't been too many companies gone off the rails in a very public kind of way. And it seems like Honest Bee, which obviously is the, the online grocery company, Company, right, so you order your groceries from the store through their app. They bring them to you, right? I think it's a really tough business. I mean, I think it's a great business, by the way. And I'm an I'm an honest speaker customer, and I have been for you know a long time. You know, it's an awesome way to get your shopping sent to your door, right? You know, great. But unfortunately, on on the business side, it seems like it's quite tough. The margins are quite thin. And I think, honestly, after, what, three or four years, is the wheels are coming off the car, you know, to some to some point. And yeah, un- unfortunately for the company, in the last couple of weeks, you know, they've closed down some of the countries that they're actually in, or they've paused them, right? So they've, they've stopped doing business in, in half the markets that they're in. They've had some kind of cash problems. And as you mentioned, the CEO left the company this week. So I thought what was surprising from your reporting were two things. One is, I think the control of Formation 8 in Honest B is huge because the Xeon of LG Group which is pretty big and everybody knows their TVs, is now taking over as the interim CEO. And there's one. Second part I thought was interesting was they're burning so much cash. And I think, is it also because of Grab and Gojek are also attacking the market with a lot of subsidies and also starting to entrench into their business as well? I mean, so I think from talking to people who've worked at the company and to also still at the company, it's been a big challenge from the word go. And obviously people get into startups because they want to really change something or build something that doesn't actually exist. And to be fair, to Honest B and, and others in its space, like they are building something that hasn't been a thing here you know, previously. So they're ambitious. And I guess that they, at the start of the business, when you're going, I imagine that it seems really tough and the margins don't work. And you do end up spending money to get customers in. And in Honest B's case, it tends to be more on the uh, discount side rather than social media marketing. Like most of their burn or the, the, the sort of spend on customers was coming from giving somebody like buy one, get one free or like 10% off or whatever. And it seems like from people who've worked there, just over the years of sort of scaling the business up and raising more money and being in, in more countries and doing more things that the burn rate has always just got a lot bigger and at no point did any of the sort of metrics of uh, the benefits of being at scale ever come back and make them sort of nearly break even or nearly profitable so i think it's just one of those things where you sort of supercharge the business and i guess on the inside you're hoping that when you reach a certain scale then economics work for you and i think that in honest B's case it just hasn't worked at this point let's go to a little bit of better news there's a lot of series b to d fundraising which we have reported instagram which is about 41 million 
CXA group about 25 million, Caruso 56 million, and Shopback 45 million. There are a couple of people telling me different things. Have you heard that the Series A and C stage funding are starting to decline because given there's so much of these Series B to D fundraising that's ongoing in the market? I've not heard that personally. I think it's going to be quite natural once Series B funds come into the region and start being a thing that the Series A investors might potentially get a bit more selective. They're feeding deals onto the person who's doing Series B, right? So there's actually a pipeline. But I mean, I, I haven't had anything on those kind of lines. And from where I see it, I think there's never been a better time to start a company in Southeast Asia because seed funding is very much out there. There's loads of funds you can go to. Series A funds exist in, in larger numbers than we've ever seen before this part of the world and then series b obviously as you mentioned there's a lot of new funds that are coming in into that space and i think like you'll know this from running a company and obviously keeping an eye on the region but in the past it was really hard to raise series b as an example when a red mark right which is now obviously owned by Lazada, when they were raising their series it might have actually been their series a i think it was like four or five years ago they had to go to arena which is a gaming company to get that check because there was nobody out there that could cut the kind of numbers that they needed and i think those days have sort of passed right and now i think that there's lots of funds out there so there's never been a better time to start a company in Southeast Asia I would say right I'm actually quite curious to know because like Eduardo Severin's B Capital recently raised about 406 million you break that too are you going to see more upstream financing going? I know that even Vertex Ventures who used to be doing A and B round, they have a growth fund as well doing the C and above rounds. Are you going to start seeing a lot more financing to hit one, two billion type of checks started to pop up? I mean, Grab and Gojek, of course, they have normalized to this. I mean, it, it seems like most investors in this part of the world now, at this stage, are thinking about doing a growth fund, right? So East Ventures, like very long-standing, very reputable C-stage fund, mainly does business in Indonesia. They raised a growth fund a year ago, right? Obviously, you know, Golden Gate has just raised one as well, about 200 million. And I think even investors that haven't announced them yet, I've heard that they've been thinking about doing them, right? So I think everybody is considering it. And I mean, you could, why is that the case? You could argue like many different things, right? You could argue that this is just the ecosystem in this part of the world is, is growing up. As you say, like there's no, there's not much capital when you get past Series B. So why wouldn't you make a growth stage fund? You could argue that it's the effect of like the vision fund, right? Doling out huge checks and that raises the stakes for everybody else. I mean, you could argue it how you like. But yeah, it definitely does seem like it's going to be a trend that's happening in Southeast Asia. Yeah. The reason why I got you here because I want to talk about the state of Grab and Gojek in Southeast Asia. I think there's a lot of movements going around the region. So I want to start with the fundraising first because you've written a set of very good articles about Grab and Gojek and I think even clarify how much the valuation really is for one of the companies. But first, let's start from this. How much money does Grab and Gojek have raised each so far? Sure. So I think, and to answer you, like I have to check this every time I'm writing a story because honestly, like the checks just keep rolling in, right? I think Grab is about seven and a half billion. I think Gojek, off the top of my head, is probably around about three or maybe three and a half. I think that's roughly speaking where they are. Grab's valuation is most recently, I think, 14 billion. And I think Gojek's is about nine and a half pushing 10 so yeah have Gojek actually reached the 10 billion valuation that they claim in most news outlets <laughs> from what I can tell from who I've spoken to like let's say the valuation was nine or nine and a half and I think it's difficult because I think these days these rounds are like ongoing right so everybody's always raising it when you get to kind of size and so I think that they're always this is what my understanding of it is from talking to people who are loosely in, involved in these kind of deals it's an ongoing round almost all the time and so different people can come in and do deals 
of different sizes at different valuations for the company. But as far as I've heard, at least, they haven't yet hit the 10 billion mark. But you're quite right. It's been widely reported and the Indonesian government has praised them for being a, a $10 billion company. But uh, as far as I know, that hasn't happened yet. And that was actually because it, it looks like it's CB Insights, which is a really great US-based intelligence platform that covers financing in the tech world. They have this list of companies and all the companies in the world that are worth over a billion dollars. And they put Gojek down as being worth 10. And I'm not sure what their source was. And I think it was a report from, I think it was from Reuters or somebody that said that Gojek's valuation was between nine and 10. What I think is that CB Insights picked the top ceiling of that and then published it. And then because it was written in ink on the internet with a repeatable company, then everybody else took that and then ran that as being confirmed. And as far as I know, CB Insights didn't have a source, they kind of aggregate more than source. So I think there's no doubt that Gojek is going to be worth, you know, 10 billion plus probably at some point very soon, but it hasn't happened yet. I think the report you're referring to is the one that I think CB Insights and PwC collaborated every quarter. That's right. The state of the fintech report. So every quarter they will release those numbers and I actually share some of those numbers on the Analyze Asia Twitter account. So that's why when you said that probably is where they got that number from. Yeah, they do a great job by the way. And I thought they were awesome. But I mean, it's really hard sourcing information for Asia. It's really hard because oftentimes this stuff just isn't reported in the press or it's sort of reported by sources. And it, I can imagine how looking from a different part of the world, looking in, it would be really hard to know what was the correct figure, right? So I didn't blame them at all. And actually they have, there are some other companies that are down there that I think their valuations are a bit dated too. But I mean, I mean, overall as a list, it's, it's a really great way to see like where the big companies are. So of course now with a truckload of cash, these two companies are touting the narrative of the super app. And so Gojek seems to be implemented pretty successfully in Indonesia only and still growing their services there. My question to you is, is Grab getting there with the super app? And of course, you can tell me what's your definition of the super app as well. What do you think, best of all? My view of the super app is something very similar to WeChat in China. It's probably a particular app with a high recurrent usage, for example, right hailing, for example, messaging. And then you try to put services on top of that. But my problem with the super app in Southeast Asia is that they're not open to third-party developers or they're not building the next set of millionaires in the region. So for example, WeChat built at least, I think, 10 to 15 unicorns out of China. I mean, for example, there's Meituan Tianping, Xiaomi, and a couple of all the others who actually leverage on the WeChat ecosystem. I haven't seen that happening in Southeast Asia. So maybe I'm wrong, but is Grab really getting there with the super app? I'm not so sure. I mean, I think from talking to them previously, so they launched the Grab platform, as they call it, last year. And I had the chance to speak to them. Hui Ling Tan, who's uh, one of the co-founders. Yeah, she said that their roadmap does include opening the platform up to third parties, right? So you could basically build apps that would go in inside Grab. And then obviously a user could add that on their side, as indeed you mentioned, happened with uh, WeChat, so it's not going to be built in. But I think the issue with really like Grab was a super app is, I mean, to be frank with you, I don't use Grab, right? I mean, I don't really travel using taxis all that much. And for me personally, where I live, it's easy for me to go outside and to, you know, stick my hand out and actually hail a taxi, the, the, the old style way, right? So for me, like, I just don't really use Grab 
all that much. And I find it kind of crazy that there's, you know, a $14 billion company that has one single portal of entry for me. And I guess that's why Grab is working on sort of payments, you know, other sort of areas that are going to get me in. But still, there's nothing that is as sticky a user experience as chat. So WeChat is just a model that I don't think really works for, for that many companies. And I, and I think it makes sense, by the way, to do a, a super app. I think putting a, a lot of different things in one place makes sense, especially in markets like Southeast Asia, where people don't download apps that all, all that all that often. I think it's a great way to expose you know new services and new companies to Grab's you know audience. I completely get that. But just as a front door, I'm not sure that ride hailing is robust as sort of others, perhaps. But there is also another problem with the super app argument, which I think very few people actually talk about. One thing is the financial services layer. So WeChat and Alipay, which I think are the undoubtedly the best super apps in China, they have a payment infrastructure that is now very robust and they are actually allowing all the other apps to build on their financial infrastructure. That's why they generate so much transactions and they're growing so fast. The problem with Grab, I find, is that there is no way they can build that financial infrastructure and they will piss off governments who already have their own national payment infrastructure. So for example, Singapore, Nets. And I think Thailand has its own equivalent and Malaysia also has its own equivalent. So I, I don't know, but that's where the critics all come in, right? I mean, Tim Kopan from Bloomberg, Smitty from Seed Plus, they have also said that this whole super app thing, there's some problems with it. Do you think that the media narrative, at least not from your point of view, but maybe from everyone's point of view, is being too over-optimistic on the super app paradigm thing that they are promoting? Well, I think, I mean, inherently, when you're a reporter in this in tech, you tend to write a lot about what companies are planning to do, what they're saying that they're going to do. You don't necessarily get to couch that that first report by saying, well, this is dumb and it, and it isn't going to work, right? You say what's going to happen and you, where you can, you add context to suggest like examples of whether it may or may not happen. But I don't think you can necessarily like trash talk a product when you're writing about what's going on. But uh, I mean, yeah, I tend to agree with you. Like, I'm a bit skeptical and I don't think that there's been that much written about the challenges behind super apps. And honestly, like I haven't done that too. So I'm responsible for not covering that too, right? As you mentioned, like the WeChat and, and Alipay story about payments is actually really interesting because what happened there was they used a Chinese New Year brilliantly, right? Because obviously everybody is exchanging uh, red envelopes, right? That's a long-standing like tradition in China. And they managed to turn that into a tradition that happens on their apps, right? So everybody puts their payment details into the either Alipay or, or the WeChat app. And I think it's going to be very hard for Grab to find a trigger that's as strong as that for everybody to put their, their details. Because I know people who still use use cash in the Grab app. And so the whole part of the super app, right, the, the ease of super apps is that you have somebody's payment details inside the app. And I think it's actually a bit harder to onboard people's payment in Southeast Asia than it is in, in other markets. But then I, what I've heard is, and I'm not sure if they've announced this, but I've definitely heard it, is that Grab is working on its own uh, virtual Visa card, right? So whenever you have a Grab account, you have either Visa or, or MasterCard, I forget which one, but you know, you get the virtual card. And so actually the issue of somebody logging their payment details into Grab is gone because they've already got a payment ac account that's linked to their Grab app. And that, that's kind of smart, right? Because that does take that really critical piece and potentially f fix it for, for millions of users that they've uh, got. Yeah. So this is where the problem comes in. So I happen to be in that industry in my past life with Singpos, where I was dealing with payments. So if they built on top of Visa and MasterCard, the typical Typical transaction costs per transaction is probably about US two to three dollars, and I think this is also the the linchpin for Facebook why they couldn't do a WeChat clone is because if they rely on the Mastercard and Visa infrastructure, they can't have it down to below less than maybe twenty or thirty 
cents US for that. But in the case of WeChat and Alipay, they rebuilt the entire infrastructure ground now. So a per transaction cost, as I recall from reading a McKinsey paper, was that it's about seven cents. I mean, that for emerging market, it makes a lot of sense. That's where I always couldn't get my head around. Either they have something that I really didn't know about. And this is my problem with trying to toggle my head. Obviously, I want Gojek and Grab to succeed with the super app. But certain loss of business that just doesn't let it work. And this is one of them, basically. I mean, I, I don't have the numbers. I mean, what's obvious that for what I've seen anyway, like watching like all the news stories come in, is that Visa and MasterCard done a massive push in Southeast Asia, right? I mean, credit card penetration here is, is very, very low. I know they're working with a lot of different companies. Instagram that you mentioned earlier, they've got to deal with one of the two. I think it's MasterCard, but I, I can't remember offhand. But, you know, they're doing deals with so many different companies. And so I wouldn't be surprised if they did have some kind of special rate that they're touting here just because they want to get millions of cards out there right because at the moment it seems like this is a market where they're not really that strong right obviously people who are already affluent and, and can afford to have credit cards have them but most people don't right i think the interesting part is that visa and mastercard is also under pressure from wechat and alipay as well because these chinese tech companies are not coming into the region so there's where there is still some way of maybe Grab has some leverage on pushing down that price of transaction. But I want to get to another question is that Grab has also focused on a lot of financial service in the past few months. And I think you have written a couple of things on that. What is the strategy there? And I think there was an article that you wrote that they might end up spinning off this financial arm with PayPal and M Financial backing them in the process. That's right. So they've had some talks with PayPal and financial, potentially others, I think, about spinning out the business. And I think to me, and I think you agree, it makes a lot of sense to sort of split those two entities, right? The core ride-hailing product and then the financial services product too. Yeah, I don't know any more than that at this point. As far as I know, there's still ongoing conversations. So what we've heard, and this is not just me, but also my colleagues at TechCrunch working on this together, PayPal just agreed to buy a lot of Uber shares in the Uber IPO. And from what we've heard, like that is what's slowing down to deal with the conversations with Grab about spinning out its financial services arm. So, and PayPal really, from its deal with Uber, is a very similar thing. It really wants to be like the payment piece on the end of a lot of Uber's services. For Southeast Asia, I'm less sure of exactly what the end goal is, but you can imagine, obviously, right, there's lots of ways they could work with Grab, especially as an investor in, in, the, in the financial business. But certainly with Uber, they want to be involved in Uber's current service and any others that they're going to offer. They want to be like a payment pr- provider for that. And as far as we know, or I've heard uh, that, they are looking for other kinds of deals too with other white-headed companies elsewhere in the world. So and I think it's actually interesting because Southeast Asia has become more advanced for that and definitely the level of access, the potential to do more working, there's potential to do more working with Grab than there is with Uber at this point, but obviously it depends what services Uber launches in the future. So speaking of Uber, their HQ is still in Singapore, despite they say they left the market. What are they still doing there? You want the official Uber response or you want to know what I think? Both. <laughs> I mean, they said, and this, this is a very pretty solid argument, right, that Singapore is a great place to do business, that there's lots of talent here. You know, they can hire good engineers, good business people, right? So Singapore as a destination is, is somewhere where they want to be. What have I heard? Well, I mean, I've heard that they've been in Singapore for a long time, right? Like how many, that was the first expansion in Asia-Pacific I think five, six, seven years ago, probably. A lot of people are very happy to stay there. And so basically they're staying, yeah. A lot of people are very, very comfortable being in Singapore. They can do their jobs across the region from Singapore. But I think it's to be more of a symptomatic of 
how Uber has become in Asia. And I think there's an interesting story on the Ken, the Indian publication the other day about how Uber in India isn't really doing much, right? They, they're sort of still going, but they're not injecting lots of money into the market. When Travis Kalanick was running Uber, you'd be working one day as a reporter and then it'd be like, oh, Uber's investing a billion dollars into India. And this happened like on a, on a couple of times, right? Where they just threw, threw money into the Indian market. And this the story from the Ken, talking to lots of sources said, you know, those days are over. Uber doesn't really believe in the Indian market, but they're not going to leave, right? And it just seems like uh, in Asia, they see free peddling. It's not like a huge priority for them. Like Japan and Korea are the two markets that they talk about a lot. There's lots of regulatory hurdles there that they can't really fix at the moment. It's going to take some time. And then there's India, right, where in this dogfight with, with Ola, but they're not really doing all that much. And so, yeah, Singapore is just sort of like, floating around and sort of here, it doesn't really seem like there's much going on. And I've heard of people being offered jobs with Uber in Asia, either in India or Singapore. And actually, the appetite for taking those roles has apparently gone down because there's just not that, that much that much going on, right? So we have seen the Uber S1 filing for the IPO. I'm pretty curious about your thoughts. I learned a lot of things from that report. So what have we learned about Uber? And I mean, with relation to DD and with Grab? Some interesting stuff, right? I mean, uh, I selectively read it. I didn't read everything, particularly read stuff about Southeast Asia. Yeah, so there was information about the investments that they've done. I'm sure you've got the numbers, right? All, all together, their exits from China, Russia, and Southeast Asia are worth, on paper at least, 12 and a half billion dollars. I think DD is the largest one, almost 8 billion, I think 7.9 odd. But yeah, I think the grab one is the most interesting, right? Because already it's worth over 3 billion, 3.22 billion, which is about roughly speaking 1 billion more than what the state was worth when they first took it a year ago. So it's already gone up by a billion dollars in a year. There was one interesting piece that said that if grab hasn't gone public five years after the merger deal, so March 20. 23, they can sell their stake in Grab back for cash. Now, I mean, some people have told me that this is kind of standard in, in a merger deal, but it's not the same case for Chinese deal, right? With Didi, there's no clause like that. And then somebody involved with Uber told me that Tencent and Alibaba fought really, really hard. They were both investors in Didi because they invested in, in rival companies, which came together to become become Didi. So they both own a stake in Didi. And this person told me that like bargaining with a table that included somebody from Ali and somebody from Tencent was really hard. So they, they wanted to get that clause in, but they couldn't make of that what you will. I, I'm not sure if that if that's 100% true, but that's something that I've definitely heard. And yeah, the Grab thing. Well, I mean, what do you think? Is that because they're not confident in Grab? Or is it just because they want them to go public? I, I, I don't really know why they've they put that in to be honest with you. I have a different interpretation of the S1 after I read it. To be fair, it was one of the most interesting reports that I've ever read for like three hours all the way on the plane ride to Europe. What I learned was two things. And then that also falls into play of what you were asking me about. What does it really mean for Grab? I think it's the confidence level. The thing that I learned from the Uber S1 is that transportation as a business, it has the economies of scale for the booking engine, which is the engine that connects drivers to the transportation. But the local fleets in that particular region, that means the taxis, the vehicles, there's no economies of scale. Yeah. If I were to hazard a guess when I looked at Didi's upcoming pending IPO, the, the imaginary IPO that's coming, Didi is going to look more like Lyft and less like Uber. So to me, that's a sign of confidence. And I think that they want to have that option that if Grab turns south, that is the option to sell it back and they will come into the market and crush Grab. They just, just buying a five-year insurance basically to me. 
Yeah, you're actually right. And I think that from what I've heard, they do like Southeast Asia, but and they're curious about it. They've read, they've seen all the crazy numbers and, and the growth that's being projected, but they just don't have the stomach and also the cash, right, to burn on this region when they know there's, there's not going to be anything, you know, changing wildly over the next few years, right? So they, you're right, they're buying themselves a route back in again, either through Grab, perhaps, right? They could potentially do a full-on acquisition or they could whatever, or they could sell back their, their stock and then, and then come in. I guess that's, that's a good thing for the region, right? It's a good thing for the region because Uber is interested enough to not, you know, go away 100%, right? They still kept a couple of billion dollars of interest assets in here. So, What do you think the long-term implications for Grab and DD, given that Uber owns such a significant stake in them? I mean, what does it really mean for them in the longer term? I can't see a growth path for DD, but I see Grab is making the bet on super apps to tell themselves we can be independent of Uber because ride-hailing is not the only business that we are going to be good at, but something else. Everyone talking about the Grab business won't survive and won't last in the future. I mean, it obviously will because SoftBank is behind it, right? Not only in terms of capital, right? But in terms of, you look at who's actually running the company and obviously like, you know, Anthony Tan is the figurehead like he's very much the sort of face of the, of the business. SoftBank put one of its own people over there, a guy called uh, Ming Ma, and he's not as well known. His profile is very low and he likes it to be like that because he, I think he's, his role is like president, but he's the one who does a lot of these deals and he's the one who's bought sort of like Toyota in, done a lot of these investment deals that come through him. And as long as he's involved in Grab, I think that's a sign that SoftBank has has confidence in Grab. And I think if you look at the Vision Fund in general and the deals that they're doing across Asia, commerce platforms, there's Clip, one of the travel platforms, there's all these platform plays, right? So they're building this infrastructure where their hope is, I guess, that as a consumer in Asia, you will touch one of their platforms every single day and then you'll put, you'll put money into it in some way. And now you're seeing them working together like Oyo in India is working with Grab and, you know, they're, they're building building this mobile infrastructure across Asia. And so I would imagine that they don't, that Grab is a big, a big piece of that. I mean, you know, rightly or, or, or wrongly, whether you think super apps are going to work, SoftBank, I think, has said, right, this is going to be our primary play in, in Southeast Asia. It's going to be this, this company. And so I think they're going to keep putting money into that business. So how, how do you take that on Wait, as Gojek? I mean, I, that's way above my pay grade, but, you know, it's a crazy one. I think there's been an interview, I think Gojek spoke, I think it's the FT, a very long interview a, a couple of weeks ago. You know, they were saying, you know, we will build an authentic business and we won't, you know, spend crazy. So they're obviously doing the opposite of what Grab and SoftBank are doing. So who's going to win? I mean, who knows, right? But I think in the short term, it's great for the ecosystem. I think Grab's got all this money. They said they want to do half a dozen M&A deals by the end of this year alone. You know, Gojek's done a ton of acquisitions. I think if you're a startup that's out there, you know, you could get bought by one of these companies. And as far as I've heard, they, they actually pay a pretty good premium, right? So so Kudo that Grab bought previously was about 100, 100 million which is a pretty good exit for the the guys that back that business. And so, yeah, it's a, I mean, we haven't seen many IPOs, haven't seen many acquisitions. So having, you know, big players like Grab and Gojek on the prowl is definitely good for the this part of the world, I would say. Just a hypothetical. Do you think that either Grab or Gojek will get honest B in the end or no? So well, what I've heard is Gojek declined that deal. And I heard that like Grab is still having conversations. So I read something in... 
tech in Asia that Grab made an offer that was declined by Honesty, but I, I've heard different to that from Grab. But then again, like it's a he said, she said, so who really knows? But as far as I know, yeah, Go, Gojek is, is not still talking to them. So John, many thanks for coming on the show. Yes, I'm going to make sure that it will be a shorter time before you come back to talk about because I think Grab and Gojek wars are still ongoing, but I think there are a lot more interesting stories that you're really breaking in the region that should be reflected to the rest of the world who's trying to understand Asia. In closing, I have two questions for you. Any recommendations on things that have made an impact to your work and personal life recently? Oh, interesting question. I didn't expect that. I started to run recently, which is pretty good. So that helps. Uh, that's been good for me because I sit behind a, behind a computer all, all day. I don't know if you use any of those screen dimming apps, but I use this thing called Flux and it basically dims your screen after a certain amount of time. So you get less blue light in your face and that helps you to sleep too. And I guess I have kids, so I can, I can usually sleep pretty easily at any any time, really. So, <laughs> although I, I'm not sure, how, I'm not sure having kids is is on is on the same level as getting uh, airflux and going out to run. But good for you. I, those three work for me. <laughs> I'm going to have more sleepless nights coming with the third kid on the way in August. So yeah, congratulations on that. How do my audience find you? Uh, I am. My name on Twitter, which is uh, John Russell. And I also have a newsletter, which is called uh, Asia Tech Review, asiatechreview.com. And you can definitely Google me at Bernard Leung. And of course, you can also, this show is co-produced by Carol In and myself. And you can actually tweet to us on Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E. We're on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Himalaya, Spotify, iTunes, and everywhere else. The live show, yes, we have confirmed, is going to be on the 5th of September, 2019. It's going to be a pretty busy week for me, and it's going to be at WeWork Suntech. So I just locked down the location. And John, you are definitely welcome to come for the live show. I'd love to come. It will be the fifth, fifth anniversary. So uh, it's going to be a bit fun because I'm, I'm still trying to decide how I'm going to get the format of show working. Once again, John, many thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Real pleasure.